This morning we'll be finish, finishing our study in the book of Romans, so let me invite you to turn to the last chapter, Romans chapter 16. appreciate Saji's message last Sunday morning where he showed us from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the gospel doesn't leave us stagnant. Instead, the gospel actually changes us. It dispels the blindness that we had towards spiritual things. It gives us a new position, a new standing in Christ. It gives us a new boldness. And it magnifies the brilliance of Christ as we see God change us through the power of the Scriptures. And in Romans 16, we're going to see a very similar principle to what Saji talked about last week. And that is that the Gospel doesn't leave us unchanged. It creates in us a new outlook. It creates new relationships, new fellowship, new concerns, a new vigilance for the Gospel's purity. And so while we may look at this section like just a list of a bunch of names... There's actually some important and helpful truths in it from which we can learn. So let me read the text for us beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. I commend it to you, our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apellus, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teachings which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sassipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord, 
Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Cordus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. The advance of the gospel brings mutual blessings to believers. And that's what Paul shows us here in his closing greetings. He wants to show that that the gospel doesn't leave us untransformed, unchanged, but it actually creates in us or, or among us relationships that are important to the progress of the gospel. So the first thing that we see here in verses 1 through 16 are the blessings that come from the gospel's progress. The blessings from the gospel's progress. And specifically, they are people. In verses 1 and 2, he shows us, um, he shows the believers there in Rome that there is this blessing of fellowship with servants. Progress of the gospel results in fellowship among those who serve the church. And Paul wants to begin his greetings with his commendation of this lady Phoebe, who, who very likely is the messenger of this letter. What we know about her is what we see here in these first two verses, that she was a member of the church at Sancria. Sancria was a port city about six miles away from Corinth, from which Paul was writing. He's writing this from Corinth prior to going back to Jerusalem. And it's likely that Paul commissioned her with the responsibility to take this letter from me and make sure it gets to the church at Rome. And so she very well is standing there in their presence as they're reading this letter that she had delivered. And notice what she is called here in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a... And the word servant there comes from the Greek word deacon, or we would call her a deaconess. So very likely she had a formal office in the church of a deaconess that she had the responsibility to help serve the church. It could be that, she, that Paul's just referring to just in a generic way that she is a kind of a deacon that... Really, we all are supposed to be deacons in that sense, that we're all supposed to be servants of the church. But, but, so it could be a formal office or it could just be that she's being called a servant. Whatever the case, she has served the church and Paul wants to commend her for that. And Paul's expectation for the Roman church is, verse 2, that they would receive her like they would receive him. If I were coming to you, how would you treat me? You'd be concerned about my needs. You'd be concerned about making sure that I had enough to eat and, and a place to stay. Make sure you do that for her. Then he says uh, in, in the middle of verse 2 that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. And the reason for this is that she has personally helped Paul and others. That's what it says at the end of verse 2. So one of the blessings of the progress of the gospel is that we gain friends or fellow servants of Christ. So that when we go and, and, and find another believer in another church or another location, another part of the country, we can quickly relate with them because they, like us, are servants of Jesus Christ and His church. The second blessing that we see here is in verses 3 through 15, and that is individual care. It's amazing that Paul knew all these people, that he, he knew them by name, and they now have become beloved 
uh, believers that, that he knows and cares for. In, the, in these 13 verses, we have a list of 26 names. Verses 3 through 15, that is. 26 names that Paul wants to greet. Some of these people Paul had met in person. Others he probably just had heard about. But whatever the case, Paul wants to show that he cares for each of them individually. And the command that is repeated 18 times in these verses is what? You heard it as I was reading it, right? First one in verse 3. Greet. Right? Verse 5. Greet. Verse 6. Greet. Verse 7. Greet. And so on. So greet them. Send my greetings to this individual person because I care for them. The first couple that he greets is Priscilla and Aquila. Um, they're described as partners in the gospel and people who risk their necks for to save Paul's life. So they risk their lives for the sake of Paul's protection. We remember Priscilla and Aquila from Acts 18 where Apollos was preaching and they pulled him over to the side and said, Apollos, you know, you might want to tighten up a little bit on what you're saying there. Uh, it's not technically correct theologically, so you need to, to take a look at this part of Scripture and Apollos was, was a better man for that. They actually encouraged him in that. It wasn't a rebuke necessarily, just an encouragement. And that seems to be the nature of their ministry, that they just were concerned about the Scriptures and the proper expression of the Scriptures, and as a result, uh, they, uh, they would help encourage others in that. Now, Paul says here in verse 4 that they risked their own necks for him, and it's not clear from the record of the New Testament what specifically they did to risk their necks for Paul, but very likely it could be when in Acts 19... There was, a, there was a riot that was forming and they were all, the, the city there was all looking for Paul. And, and very likely what happened is they held him back. It says that some of the other believers there held Paul back. He wanted to go out and talk to them and, uh, and very likely Quill and Priscilla just said, you know what, it's probably not the best time to do that. So let's uh, save, save this for another time. Verse 5 tells us that, that a church also met in their house. And so he says, greet the church that is there. I want to mention just a couple other names. We're not going to go through each one of these. At the end of verse 5, we see Paul's first convert in Asia. And we think Asia, you know, we, we think this, this continent that is east of Europe. But, but for Paul, Asia was Asia Minor. It's modern-day um, Turkey, effectively. And so this was his first convert in that area, and his name was Epinetus, and Paul wanted to to commend him and, and greet him. Verse 10, uh, we see that, that Paul sends his greetings to not to Aristobulus, but to the house of Aristobulus. <coughs> Aristobulus was the grandson of Herod the Great. Do you remember the baby killer from Matthew 2, I think it was, that, that wanted to kill Jesus because he heard that he was going to be the king of the Jews? That was Herod the Great. His grandson is this man, Aristobulus. And, and um, ten years after the death of Jesus, then you had Herod's grandson, his other grandson, very likely the brother of Aristobulus, Herod Agrippa I, who worked to destroy the Christians because he saw that this threat was to his rule. He killed James the Apostle. He imprisoned Peter and John in the book of Acts. But, but then, do you remember in Acts, I think it was Acts 5, God killed him. That's Herod Agrippa because he did not give credit for to God for his power. And so he had this worm disease and died within a matter of days, apparently. Well, Aristobulus is the brother of this wicked Herod Agrippa that was in Acts. 
and the grandson of Herod the Great in Matthew. And so what Paul's saying is greet the house of this wicked, effectively this wicked family, right? He, he's, he's a wealthy man, but these people probably worked for him. And so I don't think he's saying send your greetings to Aristobulus because he's a believer. Aristobulus, very likely by this time in the 50s, AD 50s, that he was probably already dead according to historians. So, so what he's saying is those who serve at his house that have come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Apparently, Paul had been in, in Aristobulus' house or, or somehow imprisoned there or something, and he had the opportunity to lead some of these people to Christ, and now he wants to send his greetings to them. Let me want, mention one more person in this list before I make some observations, and that is in verse 13. Greet Rufus, a choice man and the Lord, also his mother and mine. Now, if you were to do a word study on that name Rufus, the only time you would see his name again in the Scriptures is in Mark 15.21. Mark notes that Simon of Cyrene was the father of Rufus. And Simon of Cyrene, of course, is the man who did what for Jesus? Carried his cross. And so apparently, either Simon was a Christian, but we know at least that Rufus, from this text here, that Rufus was a Christian and also his mother. And very likely they, they had found out, Rufus likely uh, was small or maybe didn't know about the event as it happened as Jesus was being crucified, but very likely heard from his father and his mother about that event. Whatever the case, he comes to salvation. Mark wants to point him out in Mark 15 because he knows that the rest of the people who are reading his letter know him. And so he, he want, he's writing that to Gentiles and he's saying, make sure... You guys know who this is, Simon of Cyrene. This is Rufus's dad, right? And Paul's saying, now I want you to greet this same Rufus who is a fellow believer as well as his mother. Well, it's interesting to note the, the number of people. We could get into all of these people here. Um, the commentaries are full of descriptions and explanations of, of things that are going on. I wanted to point those out. But, but one thing that is interesting is to note the diversity of people to whom Paul sends his greetings. And this is one of the great blessings of the gospel. That the gospel doesn't come simply to one people group. It doesn't just come to, let's say, wealthy Jews or, or poor Jews or just to men. Or just to, instead, you see this great uh, a variety of people and, and ethnic backgrounds in this list of people to whom Paul is greeting. For example, the two main ethnic groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, are, are both listed in here. You have, you have Aquila and Priscilla who are Jews and Paul's fellow kinsmen in verses 7 and 11. And then, of course, you have just a huge list of Gentiles, of Romans, people who grew up in that area and were not Jews. And then you have this other distinction or variety between both men and women. You have nine women that Paul mentions here. So the gospel doesn't come to just men. It doesn't just come to women. It comes to both. Genders, and then he also greets people of different social class, right? Class people who are of the household of Aristobulus and of the household of Narcissus in verse 11. So apparently, people who are more wealthy than than others who maybe have to scrape by. And so the gospel reaches to both of those ethnic groups or both of those social classes as well. And the point is, is that the progress of the gospel tears down the walls that that we naturally build up. We kind of uh, we kind of flock and, and move towards the people that are like us. 
And yet what the Gospel does is it breaks down those barriers so that we can have a church that is made up of young people and old people. It's, it's made up of people of different ethnic groups, ideally. right? People of, of both, not just men, but men and women. While on the outside we may be very different, on the inside we're all exactly the same. We have hearts that are as black with sin until the Savior comes in. And the Gospel is the message that when received, it causes the blood of Christ to wash away the penalty and the guilt of our sin and make us into a new creation. And that's what we come to, to uh, unite around. Not because, hey, we're of the same age, we have the same age of kids, and you know, we're, we're involved in the same kind of activities, we have the same likes and dislikes, but it's because we have one Savior whom we love. This is one of the great blessings of the Gospels that brings us together with people who are unlike us and causes us to be joined together with them in a common, uh, towards a common purpose. Thirdly, we see in verse 16, mutual encouragement. Mutual encouragement. He says, greet one another. So I've listed all these people, but let me just encourage you to be greeting one another with a holy kiss and let you know that all the churches of Christ greet you. So the third blessing of the Gospel's progress here in Romans 16 is that it brings mutual encouragement. Notice this command in verse 16 to greet one another with a holy kiss. It's It's a command that's repeated often in Scriptures, in the Scriptures, in Paul's writings particularly. And I suggested in our study of 1 Thessalonians 5 several years ago that, that this, the expression of this command depends on the culture in which you live. So if you're coming to church every day and you're not kissing everyone that you greet, then you're not disobeying this command is what I'm suggesting. So if you live in, if you live in Uruguay, then it might mean that you need to be kissing each other on the cheek. That's what they do there. That's part of their cultural expression of greeting. If you live in the United States, <coughs> excuse me, it might mean a hug or a firm and considerate handshake. In other words, we should greet one another in a way that's in keeping with how we greet each other in our society, but also in a way that shows that we care because we have a deeper relationship with those in our church than we do outside of our church, people that we just meet in society. So maybe a good rule of thumb, sometimes the way I think about it, is to greet believers in the church like you might greet your biological brother or sister. So if you punch them... No, don't do that. But, okay, but, but if you, uh, you, you show some, some kind of admiration or some closer uh, bond with them, so you have this, this care that you show to them when you, when you greet them. And the point is that the Gospel brings us into closer relationships and it promotes this kind of mutual encouragement. Which is why, if you think about it, Paul has to give that as a command. Because... By nature, we may not want to do this. And Paul's saying, do it. Okay, greet one another according to the expression that is consistent with, with your society, with the way that you, you greet your family. While there are blessings to the gospel's progress, Paul also mentions an obstacle to the gospel's progress. In the middle of Paul's greetings, he stops and gives a warning to the Roman church against internal division. And here he gives a twofold command in verse 17. First, he says, watch out for division in the church. So first, keep your eyes open. Watch out for them. Notice what he says here. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teachings 
which you learned. So there's the first part of the command, the two, two-fold command. First, watch out for people who cause dissensions and, and hindrances to the gospel. The word hindrances comes from the same Greek word that we saw in chapter 14, verse 13, where Paul warns believers not to be a hindrance in the way of a weaker believer, not to be a stumbling block. That was the, the, that was the way it was, it was translated in chapter 14. Here in chapter 16, he's saying, watch out for people who do that kind of thing in their teaching. Watch out for people who are creating stumbling blocks who are causing hindrances to the gospel advancing. And how can we determine if someone's being a hindrance to the gospel, Paul? How can we know that? How can we know if they're being an obstacle? Well, it's found in the next line. Look, at, look again at the text in verse 17. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Here's how we tell. Contrary to the teaching which you learned. In other words, if you want to see if someone is hindering the advancement of the gospel or the unity of the church, then see if what they're teaching is contrary to what you have already learned. That is the teaching of Scripture. You need to connect what they're teaching or compare, contrast their teaching with what the Scriptures say. So that's the first thing. Watch out for division in the church. The second part of that command is found at the end of verse 17. It says, and turn away from them. So if you have someone who's causing division, if you have a divisive person in the church, then you need to turn away from them. And here's the reason for it in verse 18. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Concerning the dangers that are overt, obvious, against the church. Paul can almost leave that kind of warning up unsaid. Watch out for all the dangers that are out there, outside of the church. Or watch out for the people who, who force their way in and start teaching something that is clearly against the Scriptures. He doesn't even have to say that kind of command. But the reason he have to, has to give this command to watch out is because these kinds of enemies are less like lions and more like snakes. Right? It's, it's not that they force their way in and say, you must listen to this false teaching that comes straight from the pit of hell. They don't do that, do they? Instead, they cloak their teaching with a little bit of truth. They mix that truth with error, don't they? They don't preface their statements with, what I'm about to say is false teaching. Or, heresy alert, here it comes. No, what do they do in verse 18? They use smooth and flattering speech. And in doing so, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So, that's why Proverbs warns against the person who's naive, the simpleton, the person who just believes everything, the gullible person spiritually. That they'll just take any, anybody at their word. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Because what's going to happen to you is someone's going to come in with the cloak of truth that is, they, they hide it in a little bit of truth. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and they'll give you some false teaching. And if you're unsuspecting, simple, naive, you're not even going to notice. And you're going to start following them. And this tells us that our, there are potentially three kinds of people in the church. The false teachers, 
Now, this is not guaranteed, but, but here's what you could have in a church. The false teachers or the deceivers, the unsuspecting or the naive, and then the discerning. People who actually can spot the false teachers. People who are not naive, which is why it's so important that, that the pastor meets the qualifications that are listed in Scripture, which is in Titus 1, that he must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Because there will come times when people come in here. Even, remember Paul said, watch out for the savage wolves. But watch out for those who, who rise up within your own midst as well. And, and there will come times when there are subtle doctrines that, that we may be too unsuspecting for and we need someone who's going to go to the Scriptures and be able to examine them. Now, obviously we all have the Spirit of God in us and so we all should be able to do that to some extent. But the pastor has to excel in that, doesn't he? And that's why I encourage you often to be checking what I have to say against what the Scripture says. Because any pastor could stray at any time because he's a fallen human being. I'm a fallen human being. And you need to be checking that against the Scriptures. And then when you see error, you need to address that by coming to me in private or, or whatever the case. And, and if I'm a wise person, I will respond to that with, with, um, with grace. Right? I'm going to want to be corrected, and I want to see if this is true. Or maybe, you know, the other cases that it's not, you're not seeing it correctly, whatever the case. But, but you need to be checking what is being said from this pulpit or from any classroom in this church. See if what is being said is true. Paul's saying, watch out for the obstacle to the gospel's progress, which is division within the church. Now, Paul's confident that they will do well. Verse 19. He says, for the report to your obedience has reached to all. I, I'm confident that you're going to continue on in obedience. And then he exhorts them to pursue goodness. And this is a good rubric or a thought to, to remember at the end of verse 19. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And um, what this is saying is not to be gullible about what is evil. Okay? Sometimes I think we take this type of, of um, expectation a little bit too far. I need to be innocent about what's evil, so I'm not going to know anything about the enemy's attack. I'm not going to ever consider, you know, the best, you've heard the illustration that I think is a bad one. The best way to tell if you have a counterfeit bill is to study the actual bill, right? The, study the real one, the true dollar bill. Then you'll know what the counterfeit is. But, but let, me, let me just give you an example from two different parts of life where, that I think refutes that kind of idea, and that is... And, there, there is some wisdom in that, by the way. I think there is some wisdom for us sticking to the original and knowing it as best as we can. But that doesn't mean we should never look at a counterfeit bill. Um, what about a professional sports team? How effective would a professional sports team be who, who never looked at any film of the other team so that they could know the strengths and weaknesses of their opponent? How effective would they be when they came out? We're just going to stick to our offense. We don't care what they do. Well, they need to know what kind of strength, what kind of holes do they have in their defense so that we can get through and score some points. Or how effective would a military battalion be whose commander never studied the tactics of his enemies and understood what they were going to do to attack? Are they going to, to, um, to come up with a sneak attack, an ambush on us? Are they going to put a flank out to the left? What's their normal pattern of, of doing battle? See, they would, they would be toast if they went into battle without checking what their enemies normally do in battle. 
And the fact is, is that, yes, we should be innocent about what is evil. And we shouldn't be diving too deeply into evil and trying to figure out how the Ouija board works and, you know, these kind of um, ridiculous and evil things. But, but instead, we should be serious and, and at least know something about the schemes of the devil, don't you think? I'm not talking about an over-fascination with them, but certainly there's much to be said about knowing what we have as our offensive weapons and spending most of our time on that. We don't come in here and say, all right, let's study the cults today. No, we study the Scriptures. Because that's our offensive weapon. And, and certainly we should do that. But, but we have to admit that even the Scriptures tell us of some of the enemy, enemy's attacks. Like how he works. And if the Scriptures are telling us how the enemy works, then shouldn't we know some of those things? And, and so that's what I, I just want to... Yes, be innocent about what is evil, but, but I would say don't be gullible about what is evil. All right, next. The culmination of, of the Gospel's progress in verse 20. One of the best verses in all the Bible. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love how Paul gives a command in verses 17 and 18 to watch out against those who divide And then he follows it up with this reminder. God is going to crush Satan. It shows us that God is sovereign and that He will accomplish His plan to crush Satan. But the means by which He will crush Satan's head is through believers who vigilantly vigilantly guard the Gospel. Isn't that what it says in the text? The means by which God will crush Satan is how? Under your feet. Now when we kind of just um, recite this verse, we might say, and soon God will crush Satan under Christ's feet. And you know, that, that would be true, but that's not what Paul says. He's actually saying that God is going to crush Satan under our feet so that the means by which the, the final blow is going to come is through God's faithful believers. Paul, I think here, is reminding the believers of the promise that he had given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that says to the Satan that you, you will bruise the heel of the seed of Eve, but that seed of Eve is going to crush your head. That God was going to put a separation put enmity between the seed of Eve and the seed of Satan. What that means is people who have as their mother Eve, people who believe, and people who have as their father the devil, people who don't believe. Right? That's what Jesus called the Pharisees in John 8.44. You are of your father what? The devil. So all the offspring of the devil are going to have this war against the offspring of Eve. That is the people who truly believe. And the closing line of that promise in Genesis 3 is that the offspring of Eve will bruise him on the head. And the fact is that God does the crushing of Satan through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is absolutely true. But here's the great truth that Paul is bringing to bear here in this verse. That we get to share in the victory march. And as God uses you to stamp out evil in your lives and from within our church, the fruition of Jesus' death is coming more and more to bear. 
that His head is being crushed, that Christ has won the battle through His death and resurrection, and we, the church, are the instrument or tool through which God brings this final blow. As we work to do what verses 17 and 18 say, keep division out of the church and keep faithful to God. Verses 19 and 20. Or verse 19, excuse me. Culmination of the gospel's progress is that Jesus will have the final victory and we will be a part of it. Fourthly, we see partnership in the gospel's progress in verses 21 to 23. Paul here is sending greetings to specific people in verses 3 through 15, but now he's saying sending greetings from specific people in verses 21 to 23, including this man in verse, well, first his ministry partner, Timothy, verse 21, but then uh, this man, Tertius, in verse 22, who's his amanuensis, which is just a nice way to say secretary. Paul would dictate the letters, and then Tertius would write it all out. And then occasionally you'll see at the end of the letter, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Well, what he's saying is my secretary, my amanuensis, has been writing, and now I'm taking over and using my own handwriting to show you that this is official. So he wants to send greetings from him. Notice in verse 24, it's, um, it's in brackets. If you have a New American Standard Bible, maybe one of the other translations has it as well. And then a, a footnote in the margin. It says, earliest manuscripts do not contain this verse. So what they're doing there is not taking verses out of the Scripture. They're just saying that based on all the new evidence that we have of the earliest Greek manuscripts, this verse was not a part of the original. So what very likely happened is the reason it came into our text in the English is that scribes, as they're copying, right, they're doing it by hand, word for word, then they would add this greeting in, maybe thinking back to another letter that Paul had written, and so they just um, just pen that same sort of thing. Probably not um, meant to be malicious. Normally they were the, the, the errors in, that the scribes would have were generally just done by mistake. And so there's nothing evil about what's being said in here. Paul said this in other letters. The grace of our Lord be with you all. But, but apparently from the earliest Greek manuscripts, it wasn't part of the letter to the Romans. Finally, in verses 25 to 27, we see the source of the gospel's progress. The source of the gospel's progress. And the source is the Word of God. Now to Him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the Scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. The foundation of the Gospel's advance is not found in the latest ministry fad or the newest program that a church needs to have. The foundation, the source of the Gospel's advance, is God working through the Scriptures as it is preached. Do you see that in verse 25? Establish you according to the Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The revelation. Verse 26, now it's manifested. The Scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment. Just keeps repeating the same thing, same idea over and over again with a different way of saying it. Those are all referring to the Scriptures. That is, that, that the foundation of the Gospel advance is not that we need the latest program. And I think it's good for us that we be reminded about that fundamental truth. That the way that this church will grow spiritually and numerically is not because of a new fad or a new program. 
but because of the proper preaching of the Gospel. Sometimes our churches can get distracted with programs and ideas that seem to be working. Well, I saw it work over there and it just exploded them and so maybe we need to bring that over into our church. And in the process, we lose sight of why we were established in the first place. We can lose sight of whom it is that builds the church. I love sports and one of the things that really impressed me recently was how important fundamentals are to the best team in NBA history. And that best team is the Golden State Warriors, assuming they win this year. Okay? But they've won the most regular season games ever. And they lost nine times out of 82 games. And we might watch them play and think, wow, it's really smooth. They look really professional. And because they're professionals, I mean, we should just expect that. But, but their success is not simply because they have great players. Their success is due in large part to their commitment to the fundamentals. Their coach, Steve Kerr, on the first day of practice, worked on passing the ball. Which, if you know these millionaire athletes, it's almost an offense to them that they would have to do passing drills. That's something that you do in, in uh, summer basketball camp when you're in elementary school. And Steve Kerr is saying, we need to get back to the fundamentals. We need to get back to just basic passing. See that little target over there? You need to hit that. You need to be able to hit it on the run. You need to be able to hit it when, you're at a, you know, when your body's at a different angle point is that we can't be an elite team if we just rely on ability or on our star power. We need to get back to the fundamentals. We need to make sure that we're dribbling well. And the same principle applies in the military as well. Our military isn't the greatest in the world because it rests on its laurels. Well, we've always been since we, you know, our inception. We've just built up our military. We've been great. No, it routinely and regularly trains its soldiers in the fundamentals. How you handle your weapon, making sure that you're fit, making sure that you're eating right, sleeping, so on. And so from this we can be reminded that our demise as a church begins when we forget about fundamentals. It's not about a program. It's about the grace of Jesus Christ working through the gospel that is... This grace, as we sing in, in Amazing Grace, this grace has brought us safe this far and this grace will lead us where? All the way home, or safely home, right? The same grace that led us to this place as Ambassador Baptist Church is the same grace that's going to lead us home. So we need to stick to that fundamentals. Why were we first established as a church? And it wasn't because we needed a new program in the city of Royal Oak. It's because we had some people who were concerned about the seriousness and the reality of the gospel and its progress. People who are concerned about the fundamentals of the faith. And if we get our eyes off of that, then we will start to turn from what brought us here. It will only be a matter of time before we close the doors or turn away from the true gospel. And so we must keep going back to the well of God's Word that will never run dry. Because when we start to search for artificial sources of water, we should not be, found, we not, we should not be surprised when we, we are found thirsty. Finally, Paul concludes with a praise to God for the gospel. Now to him, he says in verse 25, and then he concludes that statement, to this one, the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory. God is the source of the gospel, and therefore he deserves all the glory. And so we should be praising him regularly and eternally because of this great message that we've received. Three principles about the gospel here briefly. 
First, the gospel creates a new concern in us for the people of God. As we see in this passage, it's amazing how many people Paul knows by name. If you think of Paul's ministry over his last three missionary journeys that that are recorded in Acts, he's met hundreds and maybe thousands of people during his 15 to 20 years of his Christian life, and he greets many of them by name and very likely prays for them by name as he says at the beginning of his letters. I thank God for you, and I pray often that you will be filled with the knowledge of His wisdom and all spiritual understanding. One of the ways to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ is to pray for them. One of the ways to learn their names is to pray for them. As you pray for people by name, you develop a deeper concern for them. One of the most most basic ways that you can serve our church is to pray for the members in our church by name. And I would just encourage you to make it a weekly pattern to pray for individual believers. Certainly add to that list, not just our church. You have other relationships that you you have at work and, and at home and, and in your neighborhood, maybe other churches. Pray for them as well, but, but make it a regular pattern to pray for people in this church by name. Paul, I think, can list all these names so easily because he's regularly praying for them. Number two, the gospel creates a new humility in us. What I mean by that is that Paul was not of the mindset that he could just do all this alone. He was constantly depending on other people. When I come to you, I'm going to need your help. Right, we saw in chapter 15, I need to be helped on to Spain. You know, I can't depend on, on uh, Antioch way 750 miles away. You guys are much closer to Spain, so I'm going to ask you to be my hub from where I can be sent out and where I can have supplies and so on. Paul recognizes that with regard to ministry, but I think he recognizes that with regard to just church in general. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. There's no such thing as a rogue minister of the gospel. The success of Paul, Paul, he recognized, was largely dependent on the prayer and the support of people who love the same Christ as he. And then finally... The gospel begins and ends with God. This is how we started in Romans 1. That this is the gospel of God unto believers. That is, that Paul, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. And then he goes on to talk about how, how we have defied this God who has created us. We all know that there's a God, and yet we've defied Him. And then he, he goes into the gospel. So he begins the letter where the gospel begins with God. And then he ends the letter with where the gospel ends. It all culminates in God. Remember at the end of chapter 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? It's all about God. That The gospel is sourced in God. He's the one who came up with the idea of ransoming, ransoming enemy sinners and making them a part of his family. And the result of the gospel is that people from every tribe kindred, tongue, and nation will praise the Father for His salvation and praise the Lamb who was slain so that we could be redeemed. The message of Romans is the message of the Gospel. That the Gospel brings us into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, chapters 1-11, through and then that relationship with Jesus Christ actually transforms us, chapters 12-16, to to give us... Give our lives in service to Him, right? Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, 
by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Because of all the mercies that you've seen in chapters 1 through 11, then here's what you're supposed to do. It should change you. That's what the gospel does. It changes enemies of God into family. And in the end, God will be praised. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this great gospel that we love. We're thankful that the gospel progressed geographically to us here in Michigan or wherever we're from so that we could hear the good news about Jesus Christ and be changed by it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we have never been the same since. We are constantly being changed with the image of Jesus Christ. We have been growing in our love for Jesus And Lord, we're thankful for the great blessings that we enjoy through the gospel, that that we are able to come into fellowship with people, some who are like us, others who are much different from us, but we all have the same love for Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We all have the same recognition, humility of where we have come from and what we ultimately deserve apart from Christ. And so because of that, we have this common bond through the Spirit And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to maintain that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that we would not create division, that we would be able to watch out for the division, the obstacles to the progress of the gospel, and that we would turn away from people who are divisive. And then, Lord, we also pray that you would help us to recognize the importance of the fundamentals, that we would not get away from what got us here as a church. That, that we were saved by grace through faith and it was through the, the great power of your scriptures that worked in us. And Lord, we can be so enamored by the programs and, and all the latest Christian, so to speak, fads that are out there that we forget that the way that you build your church is as we commit ourselves to this word and it is, that it changes us and, and once and result in overflowing praise and thanksgiving, singing, and also expressing our love for you to other people in every part of our life. And, and the result is that we witness to other people, we share our faith with them, we pray for them so that they will experience the same joy that we have. Lord, help us not to get away from those fundamentals. Help our church to, for decades to come, be faithful to the scriptures as as um, as I lead, and then also as the congregation checks what I have to say against the Scriptures, Lord, we don't want to turn away from it. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.